0: And amen, amen. Well, I hope all of you are doing well. It is a great just day to worship Jesus Christ, and I'm excited just to even be singing with you, even though this room feels so empty, it feels so good just to be singing to our King. And So one of the things is to say this, for those of you that uh, kind of maybe aren't able to be around uh, for just different reasons, maybe just... For different reasons, just the, the just the concerns about the virus, or maybe even some of the, you that are in a home fellowship, and for my home fellowship, the Albanese, I'll just say hi to you. Uh, it's, I feel like I sometimes don't get to be around as much since we Twitch services. But I do want to say to all of you that uh, I just miss you. I miss being around everybody. I miss just being able to enjoy a Sunday morning where so many come in. But I think like one of the things this has really done for us is it's taught us that being around God's people and enjoying God's people is very important. Now, here's what I wanna do this morning. If you got your Bibles, I want you to open them up to Luke 9. We're gonna eventually get to Luke 14, but we're gonna just kind of spend a little bit of time in, in Luke 9 as, as we kind of get going. But one of the things that, that I wanna do this morning and I, I wanna really get after is we look at specifically this particular passage, and, and I'll kind of wait till the end where I tell you like why I really wanna teach it. But I wanna get after this idea of this grand mission of God, the biggest thing that I believe happened in all of, all of existence. It's just the greatest mission of all time. Not only that, but we know that something that big is always gonna be something that is, that is just costly. Now, last week, what happened is, is if, you were, if you were able to hear what Chris preached on, one of his main points is that each of us in, in, our, in, in our own God-intended way is that we are are created to display God well. I love how he finished with that. All of us, we are maybe young or old. We might be male or female. Some of us come from a a, a more healthy economic means. Some of us maybe come from a, a less healthy economic means. No doubt that there are people that have different, I was thinking about this compositions of melanin with our skin, so our skin color is different. Some of us are married, some of us are single. Some of us have these differing abilities. But whoever you are, and this is where Chris was trying to get last week, all of us, every single one of us have different roles that we play in displaying God well into the world that he's called us to. The church and the way I was thinking about it when I was listening to Chris is just this collective like giant video screen and each of us are pixels. And at the end of it, what shines through is this amazing picture of Jesus Christ. As flawed as it might be because we're flawed, that's what comes through. So whether we're created like to look at last week's text with somebody that is sighted or someone that is able to see, we were created by God to make much of him, to display him well in the world. That was his intent for us. Now, the story of Christ that Chris told last week of the man who was blind since birth is, is, is seriously one of my favorites as well. In fact, as Chris was preaching, I, just, I came to life looking at it because I think any pastor that's had to wrestle through those things that Chris talked about last week are just important. I love it because I think what it does is it messes with our understanding of, of how God chooses to display himself through us. I mean, think about it. This guy from birth, was blind for a good chunk of his life, all for this amazing purpose that Jesus might heal him and Jesus might be put on display. Now on one level, that's pretty cool, but when you think about it like from another level, it almost kind of just seems heartless. And we don't like it because it seems unfair. But I thought Chris, and so I won't kind of go into it more, just did a great job of explaining why this is so powerful. Now here, here's what I want to go after this morning. This is kind of what I want to explore is that generally we want things to be ideal to display Jesus. We definitely don't want things in any kind of a way to be difficult. We, we want the grandeur and success, but so often sometimes in the darkness, God through us displays himself in a powerful way. I, I think like, like just as I was wrestling through it myself, no matter what you do, following Jesus Christ is always going to be, and here's a word you're going to hear over and over again as we look at our passage in Luke 14, it's just costly. But, but think about it with me. Isn't anything that is great and big and, and just this, this, this thing that is as big as it could possibly get, the redemption of mankind, the drawing humanity back to himself, that we might be the people God's intended us to be, shouldn't it be costly? Isn't there something weird in this when it's not? Now, in our reading plan, where, we, where we're at in this particular point, if you're going with this, Christ is, is journeying back to Jerusalem to suffer, at the, obviously at the hands of authorities. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise from the dead. And if you look down in Luke 9.22, so we'll get to Luke 14 in a second, but Jesus was about ready to warn the people about this. He says to them, and if you look at it in there, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, it says, be raised. Now later, starting in verse 43, we learned that the, the people that were following him, they loved witnessing the signs and wonders. And you can see it down there. They were astonished at the majesty of God. I mean, things were going Great. However, listen to what Jesus says in here. He says, he says, while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be ready to be delivered in the hands of men. And I love this. They didn't understand what he was saying. The people that were, were following, they were just, they were perplexed. Why would what Jesus said even happen? I mean, things were going awesome. But we know this, the ultimate goal of God is not that things go awesome according to our standards. The ultimate goal of God that Jesus had in mind, that he was determined there was something bigger than he was doing than just having a Lego moment of everything is awesome. He was determined that those who would follow him, and I love this, would become the people that truly God intended them to be. He was on his way to, and we can see this in this text, to die, to free people from the bonds of slavery, to, to truly now rescue them from, from fallenness and to, to bring them into the intent of God. He, he knew that, that humanity's rebellion against God, their sin, was the reason that they, they, they lost that just intimate relationship with God. And because they lost that intimacy, they weren't able to display God like he designed them to, like he intended. And through the cross and by his resurrection, I love this, he would not only bear the wrath of God that was deserved for us at that, that song, just this laid out so well, but he would free us from sin. He, he would give us now this life He saw the big thing. He was was wrapped up in the big thing. He was moving. In fact, the Bible says in 951 he had set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was so intent on it. He wanted these people to know and to love God and display him well. But again, they didn't get it. But it was about ready to be really costly. But again, redemption is as big as it gets. Of course, it's going to be costly. Now just for a second, I just, I just want that to settle into you for just a moment. I think all of us wanna be involved in something big and we know to be involved in something big, it's going to cost us something. And here's Jesus showing it, he's determined even at, at great cost to himself to restore this intimate relationship that was broken so that we might finally now be freed from sin, we might join him now in this costly adventure. We rejected God, we broke this close relationship with him. And the beauty of what he's talking about in this particular text as we move along is that he was gonna restore this relationship that was centered in and around God. He had just a big vision in his mind. However, Jesus, and I want you to get this, he was emphatic, you just watch him as he goes all the way back to Jerusalem. He wanted to get people not only to understand, not only was it gonna be costly for him, but it was gonna be costly for anyone else that would join him in this grand mission of God. And he was gonna do whatever it took to help us to embrace that goal. So the reason I wanna explore the text that we're gonna look at in Luke 14, 25 through 35 this morning is because I want to, and, and I want you to embrace this same intent of Jesus in your life. I don't I don't want us to, to settle for anything less. God's goal if redemption is that big, and that's really where I want to try to go this morning. So keep this idea of God's intention. I want you just for right now, I want you to put it in the back of your mind. I wanna keep it there as we kind of look at everything, as we kind of explore this text. Now it's gonna be a difficult call. It's one of the most powerful messages of Jesus to a group of people, maybe even outside of John six. There's nothing kind of more more heavy about what he's gonna do. But before we get to Luke 14, I I wanna see if I can just set the context of what was going on in the world at that particular time where Jesus was. See, I don't think people only struggled with kind of who they were and what was going on in the world. But as we look at Luke 9, we can just see this. They couldn't figure out who Jesus was either. They couldn't put their finger on who this guy really was. They loved him and they loved being around him. And this though is what what Jesus is gonna push his point on. And so while he's praying with his his disciples, this is what he asked them. Look down in verse 18, if you got your Bibles, he says this. He says, who do crowds say that I am? You know, a few of them must have looked back and say, you know, some Elijah, others, the prophets of old that has risen, John the Baptist. And then he just looked at them again. But who do you say that I am? And I love Peter. He says in there, you are the Christ of God. Probably better than what he's saying there is the Messiah of God. This is who Jesus was and I think this is the difficulty that people were having in in following him is defining what this really meant for him to be the Messiah. See, many wanted in their head this this Messiah to come back and to to bring the reign and the rule immediately to the earth. They were convinced that what Jesus was gonna do is he was gonna go back and he was gonna kick out all the Romans and all the oppressive religious leaders that were around Jerusalem at that time. If you look back into to, to, to Luke 14, you can see they just heard him talk about this, this great feast that was about ready to take place with there in which the Jewish society that was high and lofty were gonna reject it. But I love how it says it in this text that somehow now the lowly and the Gentiles would be, would be invited in to enjoy it. Man, they wanted in on this kingly victory feast, but Jesus wasn't trying to straight away do this. Again, he's got something bigger in mind. This redemption plan is huge. He would reign, don't get me wrong, one day and even right now, Jesus Christ is reigning. They were partially right at that particular moment. But first he needed to die and he needed to rise from the grave. Again, when we see this text, they didn't fully understand his purpose, like they didn't even understand their own purpose. And this mistaken reality, let me just be honest with you, I don't think it's just confined to this particular time. Understanding who Christ truly was and is and will be, I think has been the difficulty that the church has faced for over 2,000 years. I mean, this week, if you were keeping up with your reading in John 11, uh, I think it was like 47 through 54 one of the great fears of the chief priests, when you, when you kind of understand it, and I kind of just wrote this verse down, was that they would lose their sanctuary, the place that they preferred to worship, and their nation, the, the people that they were a part of. Now, what is so scary about this is that his people were willing to push their Messiah away, even to the point of killing him to keep their preferred place of worship and to, to keep their way of life. They pushed Jesus and his divine call for true life. They just, they completely pushed it out. Now here's what's crazy in our our world, kind of for the last nine or 10 months. It seems that many within the church, I think, are following along in this pathway, just like they did in the time of Jesus. Now listen, let me just start off from the very beginning. The country in which we live in is wonderful. I love living in the United States of America. But I think what happens is is when Christians assign to the United States of America, a providential place in history that the the Bible never assigns it, kind of making it in some way, somehow that that we are this group of people that are essential to God's saving purpose in the world or equating somehow the kingdom of God with the, the welfare of the US, I think we start to then fight politically wrong things. We get off on these tangents that don't make any sense. I think after a while we can make an idol out of our nation, especially those that kind of see our place somehow as as huge in this nation, kind of like the Pharisees did at that particular time. They had rejected Jesus. They rejected his mission because their mission was to protect their idols, their their preferred place of worship, their preferred way of living, their, their preferred now group of people that they were a part of. And the one thing that they saw and the reason that they were pushing Jesus away is because they knew that Jesus was a threat to what they held most dearly. Now, sadly, what it is, and I think there's a word for it within our particular culture, it's called nationalism. And it's become like an an idol for many Christians in America. The battle some Christians have waged to show kind of in some way that, that we find our sense of identity has shown that we are sometimes more Americans than I feel like that we are Christians. However, when we start to go down this path, we co-opt the mission of Jesus that he left us of of building not any old kingdom, but the kingdom. We mix politics of this world with the politics of this kingdom. and, And soon I think what it becomes is just this deadly poison that if we swallow it, it's gonna kill us from the inside the battles that too many Christians have waged as I've kind of looked around in this country and especially over the last year show that many of us are more passionate about making voters of Biden or Trump as president or making good Democrats or Republicans or or liberal or conservative Christians than we are with making clearly disciples. We're more passionate to to try now to enlist Jesus into our mission of protecting our our idol of our place in this nation and and the, the group of people that we're part of than we are somehow, I think, of joining Jesus in his mission. This perhaps, I think, in some ways, is the greatest threat that we in the American church face right now. Listen to me. The greatest threat is not outside the church about who might abuse us or might mistreat us. Jesus promised that was gonna happen. The greatest danger, and you can just see this in the world in which he lived in, was that in some way those inside of the church who have rejected the kingdom of God and embraced other kingdoms in favor of like their idolatry in this nation. And they don't even realize it. So how did Jesus correct this? And how can we learn to walk like him? Now go to Luke 14. So go out of Luke 9. I want you to, now building into that, I want you to now just sense the the nature of what is being drawn into this. Now in Luke 14, 25, it must've been sudden, but somewhere along the way, Luke informs us that Jesus, he, he turns to the crowd and he begins to speak. There must've been like a a hush over the crowd, wondering what he might say. I think there were probably people shushing each other so that they could hear his words. He was about ready to speak. And with the thousands that were following was suddenly quieted. Here's what he said, and I just wanna read it to you. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation that, is not a, that he's not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. But if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is of no use either for soil or for the manure pile it is thrown away he who has ears to hear let him hear now i think the words that just i think jump off the page as we read this text is those words cannot be my disciple Jesus said it three times. He said it in verse 26. He said it in verse 27. He said it in verse 33. And he connected each of them to a stipulation. The first stipulation, if you look down at verse 26, is if anyone does not come to me and hate everything, basically, that that he holds dear, even his own life, he says he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, he says to him, the stipulation, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And the final stipulation, verse 33, Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I just, I read these words and each of those are just heavy. Now to be clear, so that we don't think he's like somehow adding uh, maybe this like special super class of followers. When we look down into it, he would, this call was to Everyone. It was a crowd following him, not just apostles or the other really committed disciples. In fact, Luke does something interesting later in the book of Acts. He connects the idea of a disciple, and he uses it interchangeably with a Christian. So you could even read this text, and it could, you could pull this warning out of it. You cannot be a Christian to be a follower of Christ, he's saying here is to be a learner of Jesus and his ways and then, and then to, to live it in light of it or to, to kind of keep with the idea that I brought up kind of at the start. We need to embrace learning to be who God intends us to be by looking at Jesus and no one else. He's the one that we follow. So I'm almost maybe to like take this a step further. Jesus was saying, if you wanna display me, you can't be my displayer in this particular case. Now, here's what I want you to see in this, and I'm gonna build it out so that we kind of have a resolution to this. One person I was talking to about this said, man, they just just left a pit in their stomach of, of nervousness, and I think this is actually what Jesus was doing to these people listening to him. He was talking about in the language he uses, this is just extreme language. He he talks about hating what is near and dear to us, including yourself. He, He talks about taking up your cross, this commitment to an absolutely agonizing death. He talks about giving up all that's precious to you. His language here is just intense and severe and demanding. It's kind of a picture, I think if we're honest with each other, that we often don't see of Jesus he, we generally see him as the, you know, 70s hair guy that it's feathered back with the lamb over and he's somehow got this, you know, Mentos look on his face as he's looking out at everybody. And I don't think Jesus was angry here. I don't think he was yelling at him. I think in this really cool moment as Jesus is just going back to face the reality of the intent of him coming to this earth, he was just trying to be honest. He wanted him to understand this big thing that he was involved in is costly. However, I think immediately when you read this text, I think just like warning bells should be going off in your head because it kind of seems contrary to what Jesus taught elsewhere, especially like the way he commanded us to love people. We're commanded like in, in, in Exodus 20 that we're to honor our parents. It gets repeated again in Ephesians 6. So no doubt, right? This certainly implies loving them. In, in Ephesians 5.25, it calls on husbands and wives to, to have a unique love for one another. And we're taught to, to love our, our, our kiddos. I mean, there's no way, right? There's, there's not a normal way for family to love each other according to the Apostle Paul and what he's kind of, the way that he works through it. It would be some kind of an aberration if we didn't love it, at kind of the best. And at the worst, it would be this like awful perversion of what the family is supposed to be. There's something supposed to be a love inside of it. I mean, those are the ones that are easy to love, but even Jesus called us to love our enemies. So the question we have to ask here is like, what are we talking about here? What does this even mean? Does this mean all of a sudden that to rightly display God to the, to the world around us that we have to have some kind of like, I don't know, emotional malice towards people in our, our personal circles? Is that kind of what he's talking about? Is this some kind of like, I don't know, personal resentment against those that we love, including ourselves? I mean, in John 13, think about it. Aren't, aren't the people that follow Jesus supposed to be these ones that are marked out by their love? I think that answer to that final question is just a resounding yes. So the question we have to ask is, is what are we talking about here? Jesus, we're asking that question. Jesus, what are you saying? I think what he's doing here, and I think most commentators agree, is he's using a Hebrew, uh, he's using what's called a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew expression that, that Jewish people used at the time. It expressed, and here's the word I want you to get out of this, Priority. In Malachi 1 and 2, and then he repeats it again in Romans 9, God God says to Jacob and Esau, he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So when we look down at something like this, is it talking about the fact that God had some, I don't know, some absolute loathing for Esau? No, it meant that God gave his promise through Jacob and, and not Esau. It was simply a way to just define Jacob, you're my priority. It wasn't this like, I don't know, counter command in some way that to hate people that he commands to love us. Now, if you got your Bibles, you can go back to it. I I just wanna show you Matthew 10 in verse 37 because I think there's a beautiful way that that it kind of comes out in a positive nuance to kind of help us a little bit better maybe, especially in our world, understand what he's saying here. If you look in verse 37, he just said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me he says, it's not worthy of me. So in other words, to put it this way, it's about loving more and loving other things less. In other words, again, to come back to this, it's that one thing in here has priority. We definitely still are called to love people, but in this love that we're to have for Jesus, it's supposed to be unique. It's supposed to be special. It's supposed to be devoted only to him. If we want to be a displayer, I think this is what he was trying to say to people. We must learn to love him to the degree, I think, that all other loves and all other loyalties, they're secondary. Now, notice I said that here. We must learn to do it. It's not something that we just pick up overnight. So, so let me narrow it in so we kind of understand, I think, what these stipulation means for us. It means for us as followers of Jesus that Jesus wasn't calling people to make him, I don't know, like a, an addition to their life or a decoration or a life enhancement or I think even some ways the way the gospel is sometimes presented, it's a, it's a get out of hell free card, it's fire insurance. To borrow kind of the contemporary language of HDTV because I've started watching a lot of HDTV and I say that to my absolute shame. But Jesus wasn't calling for a life makeover. He was calling for a life takeover. He was trying to help them understand that to follow him, then he intended to become sovereign Lord and and ruler and king of our lives, which let me just say this. It is a great thing. We were designed by God to have that ruler in our life. We were designed to have that king. We were designed to have that Lord. Jesus never finished what he said. He never got to the end of it. And he didn't say, hey, if you want to follow me, you know, with every head bowed and every eye closed and nobody looking around, just raise your hand or do this short, easy prayer to follow me, to receive eternal life. He never said that. Never did he call on people to make an emotional decision induced by the passionate pleading of a, of a preacher or the soft music or the, or the pleasant environment. In fact, I think if you look at the preaching of Jesus, It was amazingly contrary to kind of what we're used to today. Jesus did everything that he could. I I think he said everything that he could to make sure that people understood exactly what he meant by following him. He was involved in the biggest thing ever and he wanted to be clear. So, in the words of the great theologian Kenny Chesney, Everybody wants to go to heaven, have a mansion high above the clouds, get their wings and fly around. But that is not God's primary intent. His intent is to know us and love us and for us to know him and enjoy him. He's talking about allegiance. He's talking about loyalty. He's talking about love. And when Jesus stood in front of all those people that day and he he looked out in front of them, he was telling them that these people, if you want to follow me, I'm calling you to be the people God's intended you to be. I'm calling you to really know and love and follow Jesus. I'm calling you now to display me well to the world. Our love for and allegiance for Jesus must become more and more and more primary over time. That's what he's calling us to, that kind of a love. That's why God created us. That's why he rescues us. That's why he renews us. And in a beautiful way, Jesus needed to clarify this for them. He wanted them to get that he was asking them if they wanted to come along and fulfill the purpose for which God created him, the purpose for which, for them, for the purpose for which Jesus even came to earth. I think he was saying to them, do you want to truly, truly know what knowing and displaying God is? Do you want to get it? Do you want that to be your purpose? Because if you do, if you really want it, he was saying, I must become your priority. I must become primary. And I think he was being crystal clear with them at this point. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, you know what, I I thought you or I don't know, someone at church had told me sometime that following Jesus is absolutely free, no strings attached. I mean, isn't grace just come to Jesus, believe his message and you'll be saved? Well, let me put it to you this way. Yes, following Jesus is both absolutely free and yet it costs you everything. Everything. He comes to you freely at no cost, at no expense to you. But once you follow him, you have just committed everything you are and have to him. You may object and say, I don't know, Todd. It's like, that seems like a contradiction. How can something both be free and costly all at the same time? Well, let me see if I can give you an illustration. If you were to come into my office, all around my office are these pictures of mountains that I've climbed. It's a a passion of mine. It's something that I truly love to do. One mountain that I used to want to climb and something that's no longer even on my radar was Mount Everest. Now, suppose like a few years ago, I had a desire to climb Mount Everest, but I realized the cost, it was no possible way that I could ever do it because, and I say that's because it's between like, I think $50,000 and $115,000 to do, depending on kind of how much help you want. Now, suppose though, that a billionaire heard of my desire to climb Mount Everest and he came along and he said, look, I'll pay for the entire expedition. I'll pay for everything. I will buy your expensive clothing. I will buy your expensive gear. I'm gonna pay for your transportation. I'm gonna pay for your Sherpas. I'm gonna pray for all the training that's gonna entail, but it's gonna require you to commit yourself to the long and difficult training and arduous effort. I will make it absolutely free but we know this climbing, climbing a mountain like Mount Everest could even cost you your life. There's other mountain climbers that have tried to climb it that are great mountain climbers that didn't make it. It would be free and very costly all at the same time. But listen to me, to climb Everest is a big deal. But God's plan of redemption, his redemption mission, his intent to become our God and we become our people, man, is definitely greater than any mountain that we could ever climb. It is the greatest thing. So it's no wonder, right, that Jesus then comes forward with two specific illustrations. He says, look, he gives one about building a tower, another about encountering a king in war. He was saying to them, there's a cost here. You got to get that. It is going to be costly, but it's almost like if you were going back to Matthew 13 and Jesus is laying out this idea of the kingdom and he says, the kingdom is like a treasure in a field that this guy goes along and he, what's the cost? He sells everything he has to obtain it. It was costly and free. It's a merchant that goes off to buy a pearl and he sells everything that he can to have the pearl. It is costly in a weird way, but it is also free. He's saying to us that there is no doubt there is a cost, but like Paul, he told people in 2 Corinthians, he promised them, he said, look, there will be light momentary affliction, but following him, displaying him well, also produces in the very end, he says in there, this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you start down this path, Jesus is saying, as he's looking out at every one of them, I think with caring eyes, it's gonna cost you. And I think there's so many people that have started down this path only to realize when they've been told it's absolutely free and they've been disappointed. And I think it's because they've been following a person that's not even the true Jesus. You knew and and Jesus knew as as he moved towards the cross, that life with him was about ready to get very vicious. Yet Jesus saw through the cross to the other side, Hebrews 12 says, and he says there was joy on the other side of it. And Jesus with his sovereign eyes, as he looked out at all these people, looked at the path that all Christians were gonna have to follow at some point. It was gonna be arduous. It was gonna be brutal. They would have to take up their cross and they were gonna have to follow him. Yet he knew there was joy for followers on the other side. It's the most absolute free gift that will cost you everything. And it's still costing us today. So why did I I choose to tackle this passage? I chose to because I feel like sometimes that presenting people, we we have this thing in our mind that presenting to people this high cost of following Jesus is like a a deterrent to those who, who, who who hear this amazing message in some way that somehow this cost will be something that will turn people away. And no doubt, there are many people that heard it that particular day and they walked away. We saw in John 6, when he laid out this grand scheme, some people, they did walk away. But I think there are people out there, and I think I was this person when I was somehow presented with the gospel. They wanted to hear about this mission of God, this, this huge thing of people knowing him intimately and joining him in what he's doing. They wanted to hear about it, but they knew deep down in their hearts, this big thing that we're calling to is not merely just existing on this planet until Jesus returns. There was gonna be a cost to it. There's gonna be something that they we're gonna be joining into as humans. We were gonna wrap ourselves into the greatest thing ever. And I think that's something actually humans want. We wanna be involved in something that's gonna be costly. Like I said, I was that person I bet there's even many like junior hires and high schoolers within corners. Though so maybe you're listening to it right now. And when I looked down and, and I looked at the Bible and I saw the church, I thought, oh my gosh, this thing is the most boring thing on the planet. I thought it was just saying a prayer by faith and being, be, somehow being a good moral person until Jesus comes back. In some ways, when I would hear people talk about, they didn't kind of care how they lived. They just didn't want to go to hell. Now, let me tell you this, it's not less than that. Especially those of you younger that somehow are wondering, am I really gonna follow Jesus Christ? It's not less than that, but let me tell you something. It is so much more than that. I thought this until I met a guy one day that walked up to me and he showed me this big thing God is doing and he actually even took me to this passage. This passage isn't just any whole passage. This passage was used by God in many ways to draw me to himself. I told him that if following Jesus Christ was only about singing a few songs, hearing a sermon, and now, now some way and just playing stupid youth group games, I told him, look, you can count me out. I knew deep down there was something more and I wanted to be involved in something big. But I knew in the back of my head, anything that is big is costly. I still remember that booth in the student union building as he, he opened his Bible And he turned around and he pushed in front of me, Luke 14, 25 through 35. Those words of Jesus, as hard as they were, I just remember it, they just jumped off the page at me. It was what my heart was just longing for. I wanted a mission, a mission of seeing people restored into a passionate like first love relationship with God. I wanted uh, something that was big. I wanted to be invited into a mission that is so worth it that it could cost me everything. And as I sat there that day, and even as I took on that passage, I just remember thinking, yes, this is it. And I think Christians deep within us, that's what we want. We want that big thing. Now later, and I'm not sure when it was, I told him that I had counted the cost. I wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus. I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember him saying something along the lines of, Todd, you've only counted the cost that you want to, in the long run, count the cost. He said, listen, you're about ready to enter into following Jesus where every day in different ways, you're gonna have to learn how to count the cost. But through those moments, he said, of counting the cost, your love and your passion for Jesus Christ, though it will be tested sometimes to the full force of what you think you can handle without yourself walking away, what will happen is, as you will now, through doing it over and over again, you will have your love for Christ, your passion for his mission. It will just start to grow in you. But understand, counting the cost today is just the beginning of more costs that you're gonna count in your life. And I think what's amazing Is that as God has become more and more the center of my affections, I've learned to love others and other things more and more as well as I should. As I've learned to count the cost and my love for Jesus and my loyalty and my allegiance to Him, I've learned to love other people differently. C.S. Lewis wrote something that's pivotal to this idea, and I just want to read it to you. He said, To love as you should, I must worship God as creator. When I've learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. In so far as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed. He says they're only increased I will never love my family. I will never love my friends. I will never love my country. I will never love anything rightly and powerfully until my love for God is priority. And I think that's what Jesus was looking at him on that day and saying, you will never be able to follow me and love like you're called to until you learn to love me first. And I think this is where the passage just becomes really practical. Jesus was laying out this difficult reality because he knew that, that until God is our priority, kind of all of the other things will be out of whack. For me, until God is my priority, I will never display God well by loving my wife as he intends me to love her. I will never display God well by loving my kids until he's the priority. I will never display God well and love my coworkers and my job and my neighbors and the political leaders in my world and all those other things until God is my priority. See, when I seek that king and I seek his kingdom, Everything else suddenly comes into this right order. I understand rightly how to love and how to live life. I learn how to display him well. And I think that's why Jesus was looking at him square that day. That's how we walk as Jesus walked. So let me just say this to you. This week, as you now read the life of Jesus... And you read his words and you see this grand mission that he was being called to. Understand that we're doing all this because we want you to make Jesus your priority. I believe you make Jesus your priority. You make him the center of your life. And all other things then come into place. You're able to love those all around you, even your enemies, like God's called you to. I love you all. God bless you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Father, I will never know what it was like that day for your son to look out all over these people and with care in his eyes and with love to call them to the first priority of loving you above all things. Father, right now I just pray for Cornerstone. I pray that Cornerstone wouldn't be a church that gets caught up in all these secondary loves, as good as they are like family and friends and neighbors and even our enemies without first keeping you as the priority. Would we be a church known as the priority being Jesus Christ? Would our love and our affections be something? Father, I know it will never be full until Jesus comes back. But Father, may it be something that grows and grows and grows, that Cornerstone might be the church that displays you well into the community that you've called us. And I ask all these things in your son's powerful name. Amen. God bless you all.